What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest this morning is Angela Hume. Angela Hume is a feminist historian and poet. She is the author of two books, Interventions for Women and Middle Time, and co-editor of the book Ecopoets, Essays in the Field. Her essays and interviews appear in contemporary literature, ISC Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and Environment, Lana Turner, and others. She teaches writing at University of California, Berkeley. Her book that we are discussing today is Deep Care, The Radical Activists Who Provided Abortions, Defied the Law, and Fought to Keep Clinics Open. Angela, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Kat. It's a total privilege. It's really good to be here. This is just a gem of a book. I think with information that a lot of people don't have. Um, and as someone who lives in Oakland and is, you know, a deep student of the politic political history of Oakland, I was like, whoa, dopeness. So um, I think the listeners are going to really enjoy our conversation. But first, I want to start with a little bit about you. You are a feminist historian. What does that mean? And how did you come into this work? Yes, I'm a feminist historian, and I am definitely still learning what that means, what it means to be a feminist historian. Um, That is to say what it means to tell history like a feminist. Um, I definitely tried to be a feminist historian in writing Deep Care, which is a book about um, the radical abortion defense movement in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I, in the writing of the book, wanted to like draw on methods and political lessons of feminism, of black feminism, of other women of color feminisms, of queer and trans feminisms, and um, bring those lessons into my research and writing process. Um, And I guess just to kind of like ground that a little bit, and I don't need to tell this to you, Kat, but black feminism teaches us about the importance of producing knowledge through dialogue and conversation. And I'm thinking of like the Black feminist Patricia Hill Collins, who names this collective knowledge production critical social theory. And I wanted to like uphold these methods and this theory in my project. Um, So it was very interactive and collaborative. Um, I really asked participants, I invited participants to get involved in the shaping of things. Um, There was one instance actually where I co-wrote a section with one of the participants in the book. And I could talk about that more later if you like. Um, And in fact, it was a black feminist who led me to the project in the first place. Um, The revolutionary activist and poet, Pat Parker, it turns out Mm. for a decade worked at women's choice clinic. And um, I didn't set out to write a book about radical abortion defense in the Bay area. I actually had been working on a book about poet health activists, one of whom was Pat Parker. And in the course of my research and learning about Parker's life and work, um, I learned that she had worked at Women's Choice for a decade. And that clinic and the story of the clinic went on to become the anchor uh, of my book and certainly was the anchor of the radical abortion defense movement in the Bay area. And that was six years ago. And so, um, uh, yeah, that's, that's the story of how I, I came to this history. 
In continuing on the the tug of political uh, history, talk a bit about your research into the Black Panther Party, um, how it has influenced your path and led you to examination of feminist abortion clinics and reproductive care models, specifically those that were here in Oakland in the 1970s. I mean, I think and part of why I want you to talk about this is because a lot of times when people think of the, the party and the clinics, right, they think of the work around sickle cell right, or blood pressure. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that this is lesser known, you know, important history. Yeah, yeah. So in the early 1970s, uh, the abortion self-help movement in the San Francisco Bay Area was made up of, um, for the most part, working class white women. And the movement was about teaching gynecology and abortion to lay people. And while these earliest self-helpers were mostly white. They were, of course, doing their work in the birthplace of the Black Panther Party. And so, you know, they they were in the process of becoming revolutionaries. And perhaps it's no surprise that they looked to the Panthers and started adopting Black radical principles. In fact, by the 80s, women of color were in leadership at Women's Choice. Um, through my research, I learned about how the Black Panther Party had set up people's free medical clinics in the early 1970s. And they described this work that they were doing through the clinics as self-health survival programming. And you can actually read more about it in Alondra Nelson's great book, Body and Soul. Um, You can also learn about it from primary sources here in the Bay over at the Freedom Archives, um, which has the Panther Community News Service papers. And I I went over to the Freedom Archives and spent time in these newspaper collections in order to um, work out this history. So for the Panthers, self-health meant training lay people to help defend the community against structural health injustices like sickle cell, as you said, like malnutrition and like involuntary sterilization. So as they were developing their reproductive justice platform. And the Panthers wouldn't have used that word. They would not have said reproductive justice um, at that time, but that's more or less what it was. Um, The Panthers followed the lead of Black feminists like Toni Cade and Frances Beale, who were uh, writing at that time around the year 1970 in the early 1970s uh, about how important it was for Black women to have access to birth control and abortion, along with the imperative to fight the injustice of forced sterilization. So yeah, abortion self-helpers looked to what the Panthers were doing with their clinics and their programming and to what the Black feminists were saying. And the self-helpers, I believe, were especially indebted to the Panther political philosophy of um, community self-defense. And I have to say the parallels between Panther self-help and early abortion self-help are really striking. Um, I remember this moment in Alondra Nelson's book when she's talking about how one woman Black Panther encouraged people to own their own speculums and to do their own cervical self-examinations. Both the Panthers and self-helpers put lay people in charge at their clinics and both critiqued medical policing. Um, In the case of the Black Panthers, they were interested in critiquing medical policing through eugenic sterilizations. And in the case of abortion self-help, they were Um, interested in critiquing policing through like eugenic and coercive population control measures. So again, the parallels are really striking. Thank you uh, for that. 
Um, you you start the book with the Dobbs decision, and I think more importantly, how it all unfolded. I, I think it's important to walk through that piece of history and wondering if you can take us through the Mississippi law that was at the center, right, of, of all of this. Well, I'm not a legal historian, but um, I can say a couple things. So Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization is a 2022 Supreme Court decision um, where the court decided that the Constitution does not, after all, protect the right to abortion despite a 50-year precedent. Um, the case was about a Mississippi law that criminalized abortion after 15 weeks and challenged the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. So I don't, I actually don't talk about this in the book, but that Mississippi law was created by a conservative Christian legal group called Alliance Defending Freedom that was um, hell-bent on reversing, on reversing Roe. And this is the same group that a year ago brought a case to a Texas judge saying that the FDA should never have approved the abortion pill mifepristone and that it should be banned. And now Alliance Defending Freedom is leading the legal attacks on trans rights and health. Um, they've helped to get laws passed that restrict teaching about gender in schools, and they're helping to pass laws that restrict gender-affirming care for trans youth. So for decades, Alliance Defending Freedom has been recruiting and training lawyers in conservative Christian thought. And one of the people who did their fellowships is the Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So they've helped streamline the Christian rights interference with government. All of, all of which is to say, I think, that that Mississippi law that led to the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe is a real sign of the times and an indicator of, um, you know, how effective the right has been at manipulating or, you know, really seizing uh, what many people would call democratic processes or what are intended to be democratic processes. And contextualize for my listeners, because you, you start the book talking about Dobbs, you end the book with some more reflection on Dobbs. Why um, sandwich this this history about the defense of abortion um, and keeping these clinics open and defying um, governmental influence? Why, why sandwich it in between this current decision? In some ways, it's the periodization of the book. So the book begins in the late 1960s, early 1970s with the emergence of the gynecological and abortion self-help movement. And um, not long after this movement gets its start, the decision on Roe v. Wade comes down. And the movement then unfolds over the same decades that Roe v. Wade stood, and also the same decades that um, the right led a highly coordinated um, and systematic effort to erode and eventually end the constitutional protection of abortion rights. And so there was just in some ways that parallel between the decades of the book, um, that is to say the decades of the history of the book and um, the decades in which we saw the unfolding or the unraveling of um, abortion access and its constitutional protection. I think as all of us, particularly, particularly I think, you know, women that have had decades, you know, like myself of abortion being accessible um, and, and looking at perhaps our daughters, right. Um, and really wondering like, 
we're seeing some immediate consequences, but but what you know what what are the potential long term consequences? And I wonder if you could talk about some of the potential um, impacts of of forced birth. I mean, research seems to suggest that forcing women to carry unwanted pregnancies to term could mean more maternal and infant deaths in groups of people with already disproportionately high numbers of deaths. So research has shown that Black, Indigenous, and poor women die more often from pregnancy complications than white women, and babies born to Black, Indigenous, and poor women have higher mortality rates too. Um, Forced births could also mean more children in the foster system if parents end up not being able to care for them or if the state decides that those parents are not fit to care for them. Um, The big UCSF turnaway study, whose lead researcher just received a MacArthur Genius Grant, um, a study that followed about 1,000 women over years, found that when women are denied an abortion they want, they go on to experience more economic hardship. This is what the Turnaway study found. So after being forced to give birth, these women's households were four times more likely to fall below the federal poverty line. And we know that women who face the most barriers to accessing abortion are most often poor women of color. So forced birth reproduces and exacerbates economic inequality and race class oppression and health injustice. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Angela Hume about her book, Deep Care, The Radical Activist Who Provided Abortions, Defied the Law, and Fought to Keep Clinics Open. Angela, I grew up in a home run by what we would then have called a radical feminist, um, which meant that women's circles were part of my weekly, sometimes daily reality. Um, can you talk about the women's circles, if you will, of the 1970s who met to study anatomy, practice pelvic exams on each other, and learned how to perform menstrual extraction, and then please, of course, define menstrual extraction. Yes, of course. Now I want to ask you about your experience growing up in a household where there were women's <laughs> weekly women's circles. I would I just would love to hear this story. Um, uh, <laughs> do, you, do you want to say anything more? Sure. I mean, I'll say it quickly. My listeners have heard some of it. So my mother was, uh, like I said, a radical feminist. She was yeah. also on the front lines of the domestic violence movement yeah. in Las Vegas, yeah. Nevada. And Las Vegas uh, you know, f- was founded by Mormons, the mob, and cowboys. Um, and so mm-hmm. all of the misogynistic ideology, um, plus rate, you know, racism and segregation, um, is a really dangerous thing for her to be doing. And uh, yeah. started the first uh, women's shelter, the first women's crisis hotline mm-hmm. uh, in Las Vegas. And so all of the women that worked with her, right, they would come. There was this woman, Carolyn Sullivan, who would play guitar. They would sing during the, the Reagan years, so rail at the TV and scream about politics. And it was really the beginning of my politicization, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. there were, you know, queer women and um, women of all colors and amazing politics uh, that were doing this really, really difficult work and just really holding each other through those times in the desert. So, yeah. yeah. That's incredible. That's incredible. Yes. Yes. So the parallels. So these small groups of activists um, who I write about in my book called what they were doing self-help and uh, what they were doing, uh, like what your mother was doing was very radical Um, from the seventies onward during, once again, years when abortion was a protected right, um, these activists practiced gynecology and abortion outside of clinics in their self-help groups, in people's living rooms and bedrooms. Um, 
they taught lay people about gynecology through hands-on practice. So they learned about their sexual anatomy and they studied pleasure and orgasm and fertility tracking and um, how to diagnose STIs and how to do cervical and pelvic exams and importantly, how to empty the uterus to end a pregnancy with a simple section technology that you can build out of relatively easy to access equipment. So, um, you know, after Roe came down, these self-help groups founded above ground feminist women's health centers all around the country, which became places where lay people could get trained up in gynecology as well. Um, But like I was saying before, they continued to um, organize and maintain their self-help groups, their menstrual extraction groups outside of clinics. And menstrual extraction, to define menstrual extraction, it's it's both a procedure and a process that self-helpers developed. Um, It was done in a group setting. Um, Once again, everyone was trained in all of the roles and the group centered the experience and power and autonomy of that person receiving the extraction. Um, They used a device that was very simple um, to do the procedure. It was basically like a syringe to create suction, a one-way valve to ensure that no air could be pumped back um, into the uterus, um, which can be deadly, Um, uh, some tubing, a mason jar, and a flexible plastic cannula. Um, And this device helped inspire what's um, today called the IPASS MVA, or Plastic Manual Vacuum Aspirator, um, which is a medical technology that's used all around the world in places where there is not, um, you know, robust uh, clinic and medical infrastructure. So this was happening while Roe was legal. What necessitated or inspired um, the formation of these groups and their proliferation? Well, in the early 70s, before Roe v. Wade, the second wave feminists involved in women's liberation and the abortion law repeal movement in Los Angeles formed the first self-help groups and invented that menstrual extraction kit that I just described Because once again, abortion was not legal yet, and they wanted to be able to do abortion themselves. Um, The woman who invented the device was named Lorraine Rothman, and she had access to some lab equipment because her husband was a professor, and she is the one who figured out how to build a safe and effective manual suction device. So self-helpers took that invention and their process all around the state of California, all around the country, and even around the world. Um, to show it to other lay people and help them get their own groups started. Um, you know, oftentimes historians who talk about the gynecological self-help movement will will sort of suggest that this practice was of the 1970s and that, um, you know, menstrual extraction wasn't really practiced after the 1970s, which is just not true. Um, you know, many people who orbited feminist women's health centers and in particular those who orbited the Feminist Women's Health Center, Women's Choice Clinic in Oakland, continued to um, study and practice menstrual extraction um, over decades. And in the 1980s, when we saw the rise of the new right and the escalation of um, attacks on abortion clinics and abortion access by the right, um, people in the movement, self-helpers, felt the need to actually expand their network and to recruit new people to join the movement and um, get trained up in gynecological and abortion self-help. 
you already answered. I, I, I think where I was going to go next was sort of around how they took what they learned into the community and, and the impact. Um, and, and that was the, the, the clinics, right? And, and the training other lay people. It, it was. And I'm happy to just say a little bit more about this because it's such a key aspect of this history that I really want people to understand. It's quite profound. Um, you know, in the Bay Area, underground self-health groups relied on health workers at Women's Choice Clinic for access to medical training and supplies. Um, community self-helpers worked with health workers at the clinic to basically transfer this knowledge um, about abortion care, about gynecology, along with supplies out of the clinic and into the community. So the clinic played this very important role in disseminating self-help. Um, the self-help groups themselves outside of the clinic were highly secretive. Um, they communicated using secret codes. They mostly operated um, by word of mouth. So you didn't seek out a self-help group to join because they were underground. Rather, you would be invited to join a self-help group. You wouldn't have sought out a self-help group for your abortion. Rather, you would have learned about it through a friend or a friend of a friend. Um, so self-help groups, while they were spread out throughout the community, they were at the same time quite cell-like. Um, self-helpers didn't really talk to self-helpers from other groups about the specifics of their work because they didn't want to have too much information about what other groups were doing in case one group got busted. Um, I think I'd like you to say more about the Oakland Women's Free Clinic and, and its history and impact in Oakland. Sure, absolutely. So um, the institution itself was called, there was a nonprofit container that was called the Oakland Feminist Women's Health Center. And Women's Choice Clinic was the name of the abortion clinic. And then later that nonprofit container was called the West Coast Feminist Health Project. And Women's Choice Clinic continued to be in the name of the abortion clinic. And that clinic operated from 1972 um, leading up to the ruling on Roe v. Wade to 2009. Um, when it was essentially closed due to the financial crisis. Um, and it had a number of different locations in Oakland and once again was part of that original network of feminist women's health centers. Um, you know, from the beginning, that clinic was the center of just a whole bunch of radical lay healthcare and health justice stuff happening in the Bay Area. And the clinic of the story, I learned very on in my research and just continued to realize over and over again is so cool. Like you could go um, to the clinic to receive abortion care and also just sexual health education more broadly. Um, you could attend a participatory clinic at Women's Choice, which was sort of like the self-help group inside of the clinic, right? Where health workers would teach patients about how to do a cervical exam or how to do a breast exam. You could get birth control, STI screening, um, including HIV um, screening when that test became available. Um, it, you could get a vasectomy um, starting in the 1980s when Women's Choice Clinic um, started its own sperm bank. You could also go to get help with self-insemination and um, that sperm bank uh, eventually broke off from Women's Choice and became its own nonprofit organization, which is the Sperm Bank of California, still in operation today. It was the first sperm bank to serve single women and lesbians. And it was a nonprofit sperm bank. Um, you could also go to the clinic in the 1990s to have a medication abortion with mifepristone and misoprostol through clinical trials. 
all throughout the 1990s before that medication was FDA approved. Um, you could go to the clinic to get harm reduction resources and support like female condoms and clean needles. Um, the clinic served people from all backgrounds. You could go if you were queer or trans, if you were uninsured. The clinic served a lot of patients on Medi-Cal. Um, you know, you could go if you were a non-English speaking person, if you were HIV positive. Um, and then the clinic also, um, you know, offered opportunities for lay people to come in once again and get trained up in gynecology. So um, interns could learn phlebotomy, right? How to do blood draws and testing. They could learn about how to identify pathology, um, how to be an abortion counselor, how to assist a doctor during a procedure, how to evaluate products of conception after a procedure. Um, you could even learn about menstrual extraction at the clinic, um, you know, into the 2000s. Um, you could go to access medical supplies that you could then take back into your community. Um, and also importantly, you could go to the clinic to plug into organizing. So Women's Choice was for a long time the nexus of a clinic defense coalition that was active in the Bay Area called the Bay Area Coalition for Our Reproductive Rights. So there were just all of these different ways that the clinic served the community and helped meet people's uh, material needs and their emotional needs and their spiritual needs. Um, and, you know, it was just always so much more than just an abortion provider. So I think that you um, answered at least part of my what my next question was going to be, which was, how these clinics differed from institutions like Planned Parenthood. But the second half of that question was really, did they or how did they influence institutions like Planned Parenthood? That's a great question. I mean, the longtime director of Women's Choice Clinic, Lindsay Comey, um, has uh, said to me on a number of occasions that, you know, the self-help movement, the gynecological and abortion self-help movement, um, you know, did so much to um, create a precedent for informed consent, right? Um, you know, self-helpers who worked at the clinic, health workers who led participatory clinics and did abortion counseling talked about how um, at the clinic you would sign your consent forms in a group setting, right? Um, to ensure that um, people were educated about what it was they were signing off on, right? And so that they could ask questions and be empowered in that group setting. Um, so the clinic certainly uh, created many precedents for what feminist abortion care can look like. I mean, abortion self-helpers perceived, they thought of their work um, along with their work in and through the feminist women's health centers that they started as being fundamentally different from that of Planned Parenthood. So just to give you very, very briefly a little bit of history, the self-help self movement got started against the backdrop of a United States-led population control movement, which um, at that time in the early 1970s was thought to be a liberal, environmentally responsible one. But it was one that self-helpers thought of as a coercive imperialist project, and this population control movement drew in part on the eugenics logic that the birth control movement had. So throughout the 1960s, International Planned Parenthood Federation um, worked with the U.S. Agency for International Development to distribute um, what were known to be unsafe oral contraceptives in Latin America. 
And in the 1970s, the International Planned Parenthood Federation brought manual suction devices, manual suction abortion devices, more or less modeled after the self-helpers menstrual extraction kits to Bangladesh. And this upset self-helpers because they felt that Planned Parenthood was making a commodity out of a technology that was supposed to be revolutionary and was supposed to be in women's hands for the purpose of implementing what they thought of as an imperialist population control project. So I say all of this to make the point that early self-helpers aspired in a serious way to be anti-imperialists in their politics. And this early political orientation would continue to um, inform the feminist women's health centers and the radical abortion defense movement more broadly for decades to follow. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Angela Hume about her book, Deep Care, The Radical Activist Who Provided Abortions, Defied the Law, and Fought to Keep Clinics Open. You mentioned Lindsay Comey earlier, the director of the Oakland Feminist Women's Clinic for more than 30 years. Um, and there's a piece part in the book which resonated for me um, and reminded me of a conversation I just had with the deputy director of my other job at, at Anti-Police Terror Project. In your case, she said, we've been doing this bleep for 40 years. How are we right back at the beginning? And I recently said the same thing with last year, 16, in terms of the fight to end state violence. Can you tug more on the threads you lay out in the book? Uh, quote, the state power will try to adapt past systems of control into current ones, which leads me to a question that's been central for abortion defenders in this book, and I would suppose to organizers across issues, all along the way to revolution, how do we circumvent these systems? End quote. Your thoughts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think when we think about state power and how it adapts past systems of control into current ones, one example that uh, may come to our minds is um, the example of how arguably we see the logic of chattel slavery adapted and transformed through Jim Crow laws and then again through the carceral system, as Michelle Alexander has uh, theorized um, in her work. Um, we can certainly also locate this tendency in the history of reproductive rights or reproductive injustice. Um, the way that we circumvent these systems is through our everyday lives and relationships. The people I interviewed for my book made very clear to me. Um, there is a lot of power in small group work of community-based work. Um, there is so much power in imagining oneself as being a part of and bound up with a we. And I think when I talk about deep care in the book. That's really what I'm trying to get at um, is how all along the way to revolution, how do we circumvent these systems? Well, we do it every day, right? This is the lesson that self-helpers and clinic defenders taught me. And it's at the heart of self-help and abortion defense, um, that, that deep care. And so this type of political engagement takes time. It involves learning how to do intimate relationships differently and acknowledging that the way we share power is by taking care of both 
each other and ourselves. Um, this type of political work, this deep care is powerful because it's what we're already doing once again in our daily lives um, to, you know, unsettle dynamics of dominance and submission, of policing and control. And we learn how to do it through practice. And in the process of that practice, we can figure out, we figure out that our embodied needs are not separate from those of our community. And it's just the absolute antidote to the perverse ideology of the right today, which says that denying some people care is somehow morally defensible. I think that's how I'd answer the question. It's just that, you know, how do we circumvent these systems? We do it every day through our, through our relationships. I love that. And I think it's such an important political point to make um, in this moment, right, where we really are yeah. seeing organizers and movements across the country, across the globe, really pushing back on the eye of capitalism, right, and, and talking yes. about the we of, you know, the importance of collective care, of being in community, of sharing power differently. Um, so perfect timing for this book to remind us that this is what we've been doing, right? None of this is new. This um, is what we've been doing. Family. None of this is new. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Angela, to, to that point, your hope for the book in the world at this moment? I hope that people take up this book not just as a previously untold history, which it is. Um, it's a really important previously untold history. Um, and I hope that people really feel that, right, in their bodies when they read the book, um, that they're moved by it in the way it moved me, in the way that every single one of these people I talked to for my book just profoundly challenged me to rethink everything I thought about medicine, about politics, about relationships, about what pregnancy is, what abortion is, um, what community care can look like. Um, I hope, I hope people pick up the book and, and really feel, um, the substance of this history, but I also hope that people realize that this is a toolkit and this is a roadmap for resisting the rights attacks on, um, our body sovereignty, right? Our, um, ability to have power, in our bodies and in our lives. Um, we are seeing, like I said previously, the anti-abortion movement um, escalate its attacks on abortion access, even post Dobbs decision, right? And, um, you know, with the um, attack on the legitimacy of mifepristone and um, the turn to birth control, right? Um, and we're also seeing the right wields the anti-abortion playbook to develop its strategies for going after trans healthcare and trans rights to exist at all. Um, and so there are so many lessons about what this resistance can look like. And um, I really, really hope that organizers, activists, health workers, revolutionaries, potential revolutionaries everywhere um, see some of these seeds in the book. And then I cannot let you go without tugging at the the thread that began all of this, and, and that's poetry. And you yourself are a poet, and I'm wondering if you would share a piece of your poetry with us. That is such a wonderful invitation. Thank you so much for it, Kat. Um, 
I actually brought a lot of poetry into this book. So Lindsay Comey, for example, um, is in her own words, an orator. Um, she would, in the course of our interviews, uh, just sometimes start spitting what to my ear were poems. And so um, on a few occasions, I actually lineated her orations um, with her, um, sort of with her uh, feedback and participation, and turned them into poems that we then included in the book. Um, so including poetry became this sort of important part of the project. And um, you know, as I was doing the research and I was really working to synthesize the lessons of the radical abortion defense movement in the Bay Area, um, I just was reminded of how many profound kernels of insight activists left me with, right? Um, and what I ended up doing was collaging some of these words of activists, some of their insights into a new poem of my own. So I am happy to share a short poem with you. And it's actually a poem that appears in the book. And once again, it brings together the words and lessons of self-help, self-helpers and clinic defenders. And I think it also will give listeners a sense of like the breadth of knowledge and wisdom that is to be found in this history. So I'll, I'll read the poem for you. The personal is political and silence equals death. So use all the tools of your being. Ask questions, be in your body, know what your body is. Claim the liminal space. You have the right to bleed. Feel your agency and recognize your power. Your life has meaning and you get to determine what that is. Take responsibility for your life. Choose yourself inside of your life. Slow down, have a different vibe, hold intensity, listen. Be anti-hierarchical and interested in process. Be in it for the long haul. Find your action pack and roam the world with healing intent. Get your hands into things you normally wouldn't. Learning how to put your hands inside of somebody is a good thing to learn how to do. Learn the steps. Anybody can learn them. Learn how to do all the jobs. Learn how to produce what you need. Become proficient in what will help you help each other. There's no way to learn except to do. Allow the best part of yourself to be present in whatever role you are in. Allow everyone to become a teacher. No one person is the expert. Use the collective intelligence of the group. Look in with curiosity, warmth, and engagement. Have a sense of humor. You don't know how it's going to unfold, but you're here. So be ready to be really, really open. Support each other's mutual growth. Take care of each other. Everyone deserves a place, so make yours a household. Do not leave anyone behind. Define your work for yourself. Be part of carrying on traditions of resistance. Bring your razor-sharp analysis. Redistribute knowledge. Build in the mechanism and trust rhythm. Don't say anything you aren't willing to eat. If they make the law, break the law. Rage is your bitter fuel. Learn what it means to defend other people. Remember that you can learn how to do this wherever you are. Be grateful for the lessons. Mm. What 
wonderful and perfect words to end on. You all have been listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest this morning has been Angela Hume. Angela Hume is a feminist historian and poet. She's the author of two books, Interventions for Women and Middle Time, and co-editor of the book, Eco-Poets, Essays in the Field. Her essays and interviews appear in Contemporary Literature, ISE Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and Environment, Lana Turner, and others. She teaches writing at University of California, Berkeley. Her book that we've been discussing today is Deep Care, The Radical Activists Who Provided Abortions, Defied the Law, and Fought to Keep Clinics Open. Angela Hume, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much, Kat. It's just been a privilege to be here. It's been amazing. Right on. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>